Did you see the Megan McCain response to um, Bernie's thing? Yes, I did. It's yeah. it's unbelievable. Okay. Her on her on the View, right? It, like, oh, yeah, I actually did not watch. It. I just heard. Okay. It. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm so excited to have two amazing people on the show. Um, they are greater than some of their parts, but uh, their parts are struggle sessions. Speaking to Leslie Lee the Third and Jack Allison. Hi there. Hi there. I didn't know you were going to be talking about our parts. Yeah, I didn't thing. sign on for parts talk. Is this like a gamer thing or just like? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that sounds like I was trying to be like. It's a gamer thing. It's a little gamer thing. Gamer words. Okay, gamer yeah, words. it's gamer You're words. You're have to give me of. some index cards for our live show, <laughs> um, which we're doing, guys. This is so exciting. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. You can hear the Katie Halper Show on iTunes, where you can rate and view us, and please do. You can find us on SoundCloud, and of course, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. On this episode, I speak to three amazing guests. Tiffany Caban, who is a career public defender running for Queens DA, because she's part of this new crop of progressives who are using the DA's office to do good and not just lock people up. But before that, I speak to two fine young gents, Leslie Lee and Jack Allison, the co-hosts of the wonderful podcast, The Struggle Session. And you can actually see all three of us, Leslie and Jack and myself, as well as Matt Taibbi and Jamie Peck and Jake Flores on May 10th at Littlefield. We didn't even trace the history of our relationship. We could do that at, at the live taping or we could do a preview now. But yeah, this will be Leslie and I first met in real life in New York City when he did a live show of the one of my live shows. The K. Halper Show. Live. We did a, about 24 hours after I was on the plane from Japan. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really cool story. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Well, I saw his um, Bernie made me white hashtag and I thought it was hilarious and also obviously very important. Um, this was making fun of the media's representation of all Sanders supporters as um, as being white. And you guys predicted that if Bernie won, what was it, Washington, Alaska, and um, Hawaii? Was that what it was? Yes. That, yes. That those, well, why do you tell the story? Do you want to tell? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so uh, I talked about, uh, so we were talking, it was the primary for I, Alaska, Hawaii, uh, Hawaii. And we were talking about how every time they mention Bernie Sanders supporters, they always say it's just a bunch of white men. And so I, be- I made a joke that, like, I bet he's going to win Alaska and Hawaii, the t- two of the least white states in the country. <laughs> Hawaii, the only state that's uh, majority not white. I bet the media was still going to call them white states. And CNN fucking did. Yeah. They did. Wow. They, they literally delivered. did. It was amazing. Yeah. So I wow. saw that and I tracked the person down who was behind it. And it was <laughs> Leslie Lee. And your what was your handle then? Because now your handle is Leslie Lee. What was it then? Yeah, Tokyo it was uh, Vamp- Tokyo Vampires. Right, Tokyo Vampires. And I interviewed you for Raw Story. And then I was having a live taping. And I, I don't remember if I already wanted the theme to be um, the Bernie Bro. But I definitely wanted you to be on the show. And I invited you. And I don't, I think I, th- I knew you were based in the DC. I think I thought you were in the D.C. area, which you're originally kind of from Virginia, right? No, 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 no you're, I'm from no, no, you're originally as in like before, you're originally from the South. Yeah, I'm and, really sorry, from Louisiana. Louisiana. I don't, sorry, I forget that Virginia is the South. Do you New Yorkers? No, you think I, everything I think is, Virginia. Virginia is not the South, <laughs> okay? 
They just like the slaves. They didn't like, they're not really Southern. No, right. They just like the slaves. <laughs> if anything, I'm being like, I'm not recognizing the Southern nature of Virginia. I don't even think of Virginia, because Virginia, I just think of like DC adjacent. But I meant you were based before, were you not based before Japan in in the DC Virginia area or no? No, no. I, I, I just okay. moved, I was moving back. I was moving here because my family was here. And it just so happened that I was going to be here right. soon enough. And close, and I was close enough that I could get to New York and uh, come to your show. Right. Although that's the public version. The real version is that, like, I found you so I could have, like, a black friend to hide behind when I said things. People have said this. <laughs> <laughs> People have said this. I mean, as a Jew, wouldn't yeah. I have been a bit thriftier about it and, like, found, <laughs> <laughs> found one closer, a cheaper uh, black no, person? They'll be like, yeah, that's how rare a black Sanders fan was. <laughs> you had to import him from Japan. Yeah. You flew him all the way in from Japan. So this is kind of funny. I have to admit that I had you, I had Eric Andiola, and then I had another guest. I think I, someone's like, you have to have this person on. He's He does a lot of, like, LGBTQ uh, stuff. And he's Vets for Bernie. He was a Vets for Bernie guy. And they're like, he does all this LGBTQ organizing. So in my head, I'm like, okay, great. I have, like, a diverse panel, you know, um, in terms of ethnicity and race, which is a construction, obviously. But uh, And now, like, sexual orientation. Okay, great. And so I interview you and this guy, Jake, and... Like, tell me why you guys are Bernie bros. And you start talking, and then Jake is like, well, in most ways, I am a Bernie bro, because I am a straight white dude. And I was like, what? I was like... <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember. I was like, oh. <laughs> and it was fine, because you still got to show that veterans support Bernie. Uh, <laughs> bro. But I was like, I felt violated. I was like, I thought. <laughs> um, you didn't get what you paid for. You, you think about cutting it there and yeah, kicking him off stage? Like, oh, this question doesn't work. Forget this. All right. <laughs> it, was, it was a great show. Anyway. Uh, and so, yeah, we're going to be. And then you came. Um, then I saw you next at another live taping, with, which you weren't a guest on, although you, Leslie, but you've been guests on my show since. But you came to a live taping and you killed it at karaoke. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So all this is to say, in my very typically circuitous, um, discursive way, that we will be doing another live taping um, in New York City and in Brooklyn at Littlefield, which is a great venue. Leslie and I were were part of the Street Fight show. They're great. Their live show was great. And this will be on May 10th. And our guests will be, no big deal, just Matt Taibbi. Just Matt Taibbi. Like, award-winning, best seller uh, new york times best-selling author journalist matt taibbi he's like a really famous finance corruption journalist but he also wrote a book about um eric garner did you guys know this called i can't breathe i didn't know that yeah yeah yeah, anyway, yeah. it was very very good also our other guests will be the hilarious jake flores of um homeland security fame <laughs> make a joke that 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 got homeland security um brought them to his door and um, Jamie Peck from the Antifada. She's also a producer um, at the Majority Report. But she's, yes, yeah, she's the co-host of this great podcast. Jake is also the co-host of Pod Damn America, uh, another, which is a great podcast. And Jamie is also a journalist. So we're extremely excited. And so we're just doing a quick, like, mini, you know, little chat, catch up. Um, 
And Jack, but sorry, Jack, you are someone who I met through Leslie, through struggle. <laughs> yeah, we, we met through the struggle session. Yeah, so yeah, I'm excited to be out there. I'll be there too. I'll be there yeah, too, everybody. Exactly. I'm part of the Leslie package. I'm part <laughs> I'm out now now if Leslie's gonna be on a show, it's in his contract that he's not allowed to appear without me. Right. <laughs> yes. You're like we had we you're, we, you're, we recently had some renegotiations on struggle session, sure. you know. Right. You know, our annual um renegotiations of our yeah, contract. I'm sorry. Yeah. And yes, now we're a package deal. Yeah. Yes, You're we are a package now. Higher, so uh, yes, and uh, no, I you just were like that. You were the person who got got caught in like a couple's like wandering down memory lane or something about how they met. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was nice actually because I didn't know. I actually had no idea how you met. We were actually bonded to catch you up to speed. Yeah, thank you. But no, so so all three, not just three of us, all one, two, three, plus Taibi, plus Jamie, plus wow, six people. Wow, that's a lot. Sadly, will be performing at a in a comedy festival, but he'll be at the next live taping, and he's already having major um, FOMO anxiety. But maybe we'll beam him in. Maybe we'll have yeah. Maybe we can get the hologram. We can get like the Tupac hologram, the Andrew Yang hologram. Yeah. So one of the things that happened recently, and you guys can uh, listen to my chat with these gents on their podcast on Struggle Session, right? Because I assume you guys are putting it out first. Is that as people probably know, um, during one of their like five, like this marathon town halls that they had, which of course don't compare to Bernie Sanders on Fox, and it's another story. One of the questions that they asked a lot of them, except for not Klobuchar, Klobuchar is like Anne from Arrested Development. Hey, yeah. hey can I bring Anne? Who? Anne. You know, she's, she's the girl I'm kind of hanging out with. I haven't met Anne. Yes, you have. Michael had met Anne. Yeah. Her? It's kind of my girlfriend. Her? Do you, do you not like her? I don't know her. Like, she kind of doesn't exist. Like, no one remembers. <laughs> but they asked the other ones uh, about whether or not people should have the right to vote while they're incarcerated. There were real divisions oh, between sure. these candidates. One of them was on an issue which was a surprise to me, which was when Senator Bernie Sanders said he supported voting rights for people in prison, felons in prison, including the worst of the worst. I think the right to vote is inherent to our democracy. Yes, even for terrible people. Bernie mm -hmm. Sanders very typically, you know, bravely said yes. He was unequivocal. And then uh, some more equivocal, like Harris said, it's just a conversation that needs to be had. People who are in convicted in prison, like the Boston Marathon bomber, on death row, people who are convicted of sexual assault, they should be able to vote? I think we should have that conversation. Mayor Pete gave like a terrible answer. While incarcerated? Yeah. No, I don't think so. But we're going to talk today about the really the most important political voice, which is, of course, the voice of, say it with me now, Meghan McCain. Oh, yeah. Who, yeah. Um, very important. Very important. Biden endorser. her. Did you see this? That the uh, the McCain family is endorsing Biden. <laughs> did, they get, did they ask him, John, on his death? It's it, it, like, <laughs> it, it was in his will. It was in, in, in his will that they should endorse uh, Joe Biden. I can actually see Joe Biden like visiting McCain when he's sick and be like, Johnny, I hate to bother you right now. Right. You know, oh, buddy, you know, he just like with some nickname or some like platitude about time. Anyway, um, so, yeah, Meghan McCain, um, who is always like I always turn to her for my political wisdom. And she right. gets very outraged, extremely dangerous. She thought it was extremely dangerous. And it is very dangerous, very dangerous. When Ilhan Omar said stuff about 
you know, the existence of, of, of Israel lobby. I don't know if you guys saw that on the view, but it's pretty amazing. Oh, I keep up. I keep great. up. Yeah. You guys, you and um, Kate did a great thing where you did like a, a bit of a reading of McCain, yeah. McCain and Michael Ian Black's um, the book that they wrote together. Yeah. We are uh, we're currently reading it one page at a time uh, on request yeah. from the uh, chat on the morning <sighs> show. Yeah. Uh, it's great. They have, they have such a wonderful friendship. They met because their agents knew each other. Matchmaker. <laughs> <laughs> like Beto's dad giving him a name that would be yeah. tongue of it's such a heartwarming yeah. tale. Yeah, exactly. So um, she is. Uh, I didn't know she was a Biden endorser, but in case you need one other reason to not get behind Biden, you have the um, the family <laughs> of the man. Um, not to speak ill of the dead, but I do want to remind people that John McCain refused to stop referring to Vietnamese people as "gooks," the G word. Right. Um, right. Now, some people he also called his wife the C word at one point. That was fun. Yeah. But this week, he actually like defends. You know what I mean? Like he and but here's his position on it because people right. you know he was tortured when he tried to like subvert democracy in another country through the U.S. military, and I guess he was a really bad fighter pilot, which is kind of funny. Right. One of the few. Well, that's because he was like a rich kid. They right. like yeah. uh, they, he got in easy. I do have to admit, when Trump was like, I like when people don't, personally. I like when when soldiers don't get caught personally. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> my president. Hey, that was. My president. Yeah. <laughs> the closest he got, though. But I, I still think that he's usually pretty on the money with hating John McCain. Yeah. That's something where I still stand with the president yeah. is, is hating on John he McCain. He's on the money when he's like says things that are true. He's he's almost like Chomskyan, but like he thinks that's OK. So he'll say, like, oh, we're not going to Saudi Arabia because they're buying a lot of weapons. Duh. And yeah. same thing. Like the U.S. won't do anything about Saudi Arabia because they're a client. Yeah. But like Chomsky would condemn it, and yeah, Trump Trump's like, "Come like, on, get yeah, with it. it. Yeah, it's, it's good. Yeah, so it's, it's Jared's on Snapchat with him. Gosh, so disgusting. Um, <laughs> so John McCain, his thing is that he doesn't call most Vietnamese people gooks, gooks. I don't know how to say it, and I don't. I should probably say the G word, but I want to make sure people know it once. He doesn't call most <laughs> people of that um from that country that were just the people who tortured him right it should be like if if like something had happened to me and it had been done by latino men right and i called them spicks but like right. only those guys right like not latinos in general only if it was those guys or if you were pretty sure it was those guys or like but like reminded you yeah, of those so guys. This is know? something I've heard my entire life from white people who want to justify their use of the N word. It's like, no, no, I only use it against black people who I don't like. Right. That, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's, it's fine makes, then. It's it actually makes it worse than people right. who just like I just play around with it or like black people saying it's fine because you're admitting that you're using it as like your as a as a slur, right? I like to attack people. Like, right. I'm going to use a word that's related to people's race in order to insult them. Yeah, um, disarm and, like, destroy you. Yeah. it's, it's my, When I was in Spain, I remember... An interesting thing about leftists in Spain is that they don't have the best critical race theory. I'm just going to generalize about white Spaniards. And when I was there, I got into a fight with, like, a socialist neuroscientist about whether it was racist that the Spanish um, Olympics basketball team, when they were in... Um, Hong Kong, I think it was Hong Kong, they posed in a photo and they like went like this with their eyes, like the thing where you put your fingertips <laughs> on your eyes to change sure. shape. 
And they're like, no, it's not racist. It's just like, you don't get it because you're American. We don't have that issue. I'm like, yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> that's one of my favorite things. Like, right. Even Australians try to pull that. Like, like oh, no, 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 no. We, we're, we're not we're racist not, yeah. here, mate. We're Australians. We're, Australians yeah. we're not racist. We're Australians. Yeah. No, mate. No, mate. Yeah, mate. <laughs> we take care of our own. We take care of our own. <laughs> like, they ship them off to, like, residential schools. So... Then I remember they were like, no, it's not racist. And it's also not racist when um, people showed up to this guy, Lewis Hamilton, I think is his name. He's a, a car driver, race car driver. Do you guys know anything about this sport? Lewis Hamilton. I don't know anything about it, no. no. Black um, British guy. And, and some people showed up in like Rasta hats and sure. blackface. Cool. And I was like, that's also racist. And the guy was like, oh, no, you don't get it. Like, the people who show up in blackface to those car races, they, like, they're supporting the other guy. They're rooting for the other guy. I'm like, <laughs> that makes it, like, that much worse. Like, It's worse, yeah. Not <laughs> like I'd expect. Like, it would be very weird for, like, a supportive person to show up in a Rasta right. hat and wig and black right. in, like, support. Like, but there, that would be, like, racist in a different way from, like, right. you're bad, so I'm going to make fun of you. Right. It's like, yeah, no, 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 no. It's okay. What they're doing is <laughs> yeah, uh, it's doing like, it to make fun of him. They're doing it to like, hurt him. like, accidentally <laughs> orientalizing enthusiasm where, right. like, they were trying to support them. They just don't understand cultural sensitivity. No, anyway. So, see, it's, it's, it's these curv- curvy, curvaceous, low-key, thick narratives that you will get at our live taping. <laughs> anyway, back to back to McCain. Um, she's great on Ilana Marsh. She's just great about you know right. the moral. So she was extremely upset because Bernie Sanders said that people who, uh, even people like the, the the Boston Marathon bombers, deserve the right to vote. For Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris to go on TV and say that the Boston terrorist deserves any rights in this country after killing three people and injuring 264 in 2013, I think is disgraceful. I was very upset about this this morning well, because awesome. if just one second, if Democrats want to drag everybody this far left, this is why people like me are so upset and so disenfranchised with how extreme this is. And so Megan McCain went on Twitter and said, the man who commit one of the most massive acts of terrorism in this country where three people were killed and 264 were injured should have the same voting rights I do. All Democrats have to do is not be crazy. And this is batshit insane and deeply offensive to the bombing victims. So I thought that was like a kind of ridiculous tweet on a lot of levels. Sure. But like, how up your own ass you have to be to make your objection based on the fact that other people should have the same rights as you (laughs) as other americans or other citizens it's like but me like well to be to be fair she does have a history of bombing in her family and she feels like if she has resisted it you're right then you know uh, these other guys should have been able to resist. You're right. Well. I will. T- right. I she's being a narcissist, but you're actually pointing out that she's speaking as like a, as a fellow, as a would-be bomber. 
Well, so here's here's my thing. Actually, this is this I, I this is where I think it's very weird that she's doing this because you know she's talking about uh, uh, that we should take the rights away from people who are imprisoned for doing terrorist bombings uh, uh, <laughs> within a country. I'm like, she's talking about like someone who maybe is held as a prisoner of war after doing extra legal bombings in a nation and killing people. <laughs> you really. This is really helpful. I didn't think of this. Basically, what she meant to write was like she meant to write like the man who commit one of the most massive acts of terrorism in this country should have the same. No, should have more voting rights than my dad when he tried. <laughs> yeah, to no, exactly. no, it's not my dad. It's my father. My father. My father. Right. Yeah, my father. My father. My father. Like. My father didn't create, didn't do terrorism in another country, so that someone could come here and do terrorism in this right, country exactly. and vote. And more effect. I mean, I don't want. Yeah, her father's like a failed war criminal. He like couldn't even. Right. Um, right. You know what's interesting is like sometimes McCain. He's not a maverick, except every now and then he kind of is. And I don't know if it was like the old age or something, but he really he was good on torture. Because he was well, tortured. I mean, I, it's, I'm, again, that that's identity politics for it him. Is. It is, it, it is. <laughs> as a tortured American, tortured it's identity American. politics. <laughs> as someone who self-identifies as a tortured right. American, yeah. this is an important exactly. issue to me. Right. And I know it's a low bar, but I'm kind of impressed that he wasn't just like, especially given how racist he was and how his, you know, he likes to sing bomb, 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 bomb around. Like, uh, I'm kind of impressed that he had the like the sensitivity to think international law should. Be international law apply yeah, sure exactly. he also wrote an op-ed like praising the last living abraham lincoln brigade's um veteran when he died so he actually wrote an op-ed in the new york times like praising the last person who fought in who from america who went to spain to fight against franco which is just very weird like, <laughs> anyway, thank you mccain for that too i guess that's nice yeah. that he did that and it's kind of, it's weird i mean i mean I guess it should, he, to be fair, he was just praising someone who fought against fascism. But right, the right is so noxious and and so red baiting that usually they just don't like to associate with anything that was at all on the side of the left or supported by communists. Anyway, um, right? He he yeah, he's such a maverick that he'd be willing to support an anti-fascist. Yeah, <laughs> anti-fascist uh, resistance. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Megan McCain, God bless her. She really is. I feel like she resonates with with the with the like woke neoliberal crowd because she saw her her feminism is being as entitled as like a straight white man right like, <laughs> so out of like out of touch with how other people live and she's just so unapologetic right. she doesn't let her gender get in the way of that um of not knowing shit about anything yeah. but uh talking about it a lot yeah, like just it's inspiring really ass and like moralizing and <laughs> without any yeah. any understanding of anything. It's not hard to say the Boston terrorist was a psycho lunatic who is a threat not only to national security, but shouldn't be allowed the right to vote in any elections. It's not that hard. Clear, though, Kamala yes. Harris did not right. say that. Kamala Harris said we should have a conversation. We can have a conversation about it, but I think we need to make it very clear. And that's she fine. Did, that's not good enough not for me. Say that. That's not good enough for me. But Kamala, that's not good enough for me. And yeah. there's an amazing exchange that I have to say on The View when she was attacking Ilhan Omar, and God bless Meghan McCain, and God bless Abby Huntsman. I'm with Pete Buttigieg. I, I love Mayor Pete. Because um, it's just great to see totally mediocre 
failures of like somewhat not even moderate Republicans, but Republicans who get called moderate. It's great that they have this outlet called The View where they get to spout their opinions out and get paid lots of money just because their dads are these like really <laughs> Yeah. Um, how wonderful. It's a nice jobs program that uh, the ABC network yeah. does. Yeah. Is it ABC? I think it's ABC, think right? Big brother, big sister. Um, yeah. not so big we daughters. need somewhere to put these children yeah. of uh, of uh, senators. Exactly. Uh, we yeah. need them to be doing something. Because they could wind up on the streets of Washington, D.C. Yeah. It's kind of like a new deal. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, we need to put everyone to work. Yeah. The gold new deal. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's a really interesting exchange that I, I highly recommend, which is um, when she's talking about how Ilan Omar is so racist and she comes out as a borderline Zionist. Um, mm-hmm. which is kind of funny because she's saying it it's as if it's a good thing, but she's also presenting it as if it's a psychiatric disorder. <laughs> um, and she talks about how Joe Lieberman and Hadassah are like family, which is like the weirdest right. thing to hear ever, that people would elect to have be related to these people. They're so... <laughs> and um, she is talking about her, you know, why it's anti-Semitic. And obviously this is a case of a black Muslim woman being called an anti-Semite. And I don't know if you know this, but you know the woman Sunny on The View? There's a woman named Sunny who's black. Uh, and she, she says, well, I'm black and Jewish, so I face anti-Semitism and racism. And I will tell and- you, I take this very personally as a woman of color who has, you know, been the subject of so much bigotry. And what a lot of people don't know is that my grandfather is Jewish. He is a Sephardic so- Jew. And so I have... You know, my family members have received a lot of bigotry. So, And Meghan McCain... It's as if the woman next to her did not mention that she happens to be from the two groups that are very implicated in this. Like, she doesn't miss a beat. She's just like, Joy, can I can I talk again? Because I know that you're... <laughs> I, I, I've experienced firsthand in my family anti-Semitism and bigotry so, for being black. And so I, I, I just, right. this whole, you know, thing, Sonny, I think it's just a distraction. Just let my answer. Are you okay. comfortable with me speaking now? So, yeah. but, are we comfortable with me rebutting now? Yes. Okay. Do you feel comfortable with my talking again? She couldn't yeah. tell us about Sunny being a black Jewish woman. It doesn't. No, Megan McCain is not there to listen. Megan McCain, Megan McCain's whole life has been about just like say, talking out. She can just say out yeah. and loudly, and then like things happen. Things come to her yeah. because you know she's John McCain's daughter. She gets to be on the View. My her, the fact that even her view, that like her like view of the world or perspective yeah. is interesting right. in any way is like truly offensive yeah. to be yes. honest with you. It's just a truly offensive yeah. idea. It's another war crime. It's like the next yeah, generation. It really is. When will the McCain death. family stop yeah. doing, I don't think terrorists like Megan McCain should be able to vote until they get off our airwaves. Seriously. I mean, I realize that like she does have this military cadence, like, and this crazy look in her face. But if you just imagine her being like, sir, yes, sir. Like, it makes sense. Yeah. She's just saying yeah. ridiculous stuff about, like, how, you know, she's a woke, uh, never Trump Republican. Yeah. yeah. Like an anti-Semitic um, publication. Yeah. Her, yeah. The what, what does he run? He runs a Federalist, I believe. The Federalist. OK. Yeah. yeah. How like, wonderful. Max Blumenthal, when he came on. Very woke. Very woke. Read something about it that was. Like there was a great passage that his this publication that he runs, they published it about like Jewish women infantilizing men and making you feel infantilized. And 
emasculated. And it, it, it's a guy named Josh Seidel who's like, a, a, he's like Richard Spencer, but Jewish. He's like a Jewish anti-Semite alt-right guy. Um, Jeez. So, yeah, I, I feel like Meghan McCain could like, you know, it's kind of, it's offensive also that to hear her try to pretend to like, represent or care about Jews and, and know what anti-Semitism is. Right. If she does, she probably well, will like rip out some of the, delete some of the URLs of her husband's publication. <laughs> she is, uh, she's one of the, the new brand of uh, non-Jewish white woman who speaks like her and Chelsea Clinton are the vanguards, are the vanguards of the Jewish faith at this point. Uh, uh, so we should turn to them for uh, for what we should think about Israel and everything like that. Chelsea's Jew Jason, though, at least. She's married to a Jew. She has that. Right. But Chelsea Clinton looks like Arafat or something next to um, next to Meghan McCain. Like, she looks <laughs> so good on that next to Meghan McCain because Meghan McCain. It's true. Yeah. Um, anyway, and also, you know, she praises Lieberman, and we should remind people that Joe Lieberman called John Hagee a Moses-like figure. And John Hagee, of course, famously uh, said that, you know, Hitler Jesus. was part of, like, God's plan and that, you know, he wants all the Jews to go back and convert or die. Cool. Anyway. Very nice. Well, Very nice. It's just been like a teaser, I would say. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, a, you know, just to, to listen to over Passover dinner. And um, if you want more of this, um, you can. You can have it all, guys. You can have it all. Wh- We'll be out there on the 10th, on May 10th. May the 10th at Louisfield. Yeah. Get your tickets now. Be there. Be there, everyone. Uh, It's going to be a good show. It's going to be more of this. And Megan McCain. We'll also talk about hot dogs. We'll also talk about hot dogs there. Yeah. I'm excited. All right. I'm excited, too. I think it's going to be a great show. Awesome. Okay. Bye, everyone. Goodbye. And don't go anywhere because... Now, I'm going to play you an interview that I did with Tiffany Caban on the radio, and she is running for Queens DA. Tiffany was born in Richmond Hill, Queens, to Puerto Rican parents who grew up in Woodside houses. Her father worked as an elevator mechanic, and her mother took care of other people's children. Passionate about the relationship between law policy and social inequity, Tiffany entered law school knowing she would one day become a public defender. While there, she participated in the Impact Center on Public Interest Law, where she focused her advocacy on criminal law and social justice. She also served as president of the Student Bar Association and was an active member of Outlaws, the LGBTQIA and Student Association at New York Law School. In four years at New York County Defender Services and three years at the Legal Aid Society's criminal defense practice, Tiffany has represented over a thousand indigent clients in cases ranging from turnstile jumping to homicide. Throughout her professional career, she has used the law to help New York City's most vulnerable communities, and her experiences advocating on behalf of her clients have helped her identify some of the worst inequities of our criminal justice system. Tell listeners why you're running. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you mentioned progressive DAs, and that's part of the reason why I'm running. I, I think that everybody in the field is sort of calling themselves a progressive prosecutor to the point where it's pretty much lost all of its meaning. And so I like to talk about decarceral um, DAs. And for me, getting into this race a bunch of different things. Uh, my experiences as a public defender, uh, with my clients centering their experiences, their struggles, my experiences as um, you know, a, a Latina woman coming from a low-income household, um, being in neighborhoods that were over-policed, over-criminalized, 
uh, and recognizing through my personal professional experiences that we were pretty much being sold this false promise of safety from our district attorney's offices uh, and perpetuating a lot of the the historical oppressions and marginalizations of the same groups. And uh, I see a real opportunity here to transform that system um, and do some better work. Great. And um, I should also tell listeners, I'll bet you very excited, that they can because we believe in democracy and participation, participation um, more than we do in then uh, more than we do in enunciating. Uh, you can call the studio line and you can actually ask questions of our guests, and you can do that at two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. Again, that's two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. We'll be doing that later on in the show. Um, I've been reading some interviews with you and listening to some. And you talk about uh, trauma-informed justice. So can you talk about that term and what it means? Yes, absolutely. Um, for me, it, it, obviously, it, it's quite personal. I think that you know, when we talk about going into public defense work, um, it is my trauma history that brought me there. And um, f- it is trauma work that we do as public defenders. Um, it's really important to recognize that the communities that have been so devastated by our criminal justice system, by our prison industrial complex, are the same communities that historically um, experience trauma at higher rates and have the least amount of access to resources. And I make it a little bit personal in the sense that when I'm, I'm talking about a client or advocating for a client um, and we're looking for a just outcome, it's about learning about where they came from and why. And I talk about the fact that um, you know it is by virtue of privilege to access to resources like therapy, education, uh, that separates me from my clients sometimes. And so the difference for them is the access to have the tools in their toolbox to to change behavior. And so we're not talking about good people or bad people. We're just talking about people and how we can better take care of people. Right, because not everyone has access to radical self-care. Right? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I mean, it's it's good, and you hear people talk about it, and it is good. And if you can afford it or you can access it, that's great. But it's true that it's something that not everyone can afford. And so the question is, like, what does the rest of the world do um, if they don't have access to that? Um, You know, like, we have a very nonprofit set up here, as you can tell from the the talking that comes into these walls. So we'd be, you know, the, we're like, just to make a parallel. See how I, I pull everything <laughs> together? I, sh- I make a good lawyer, right? Because you're supposed to sew things together, Absolutely. right? I've seen a lot of law and order. Um, oh, they make us look bad. I know. So bad. I know, you're always the bad guys, yeah. right? Who, they wait, well, they wait for the confession. The, right. The, the defense attorney's sitting next to the client and they wait till after the confession. Like, no, 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 the questioning stops now. Right, 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 so stop, stop, be quiet. Don't say anything <laughs> else, say no more, please. What made you want to go to law school, by the way? Like, was there, I know, obviously you have this sense of justice, but like, was there an aha moment? Was there a moment where you saw something that was really terrible? You're like, I want to grow up and make sure that stuff never happens or? Um, Honestly, when I was really little, I wanted to be a vet and then figured out that I was like terrible at science. Really? Um, Yeah. (laughs) You have two dogs, right? I have two dogs. Yeah. Two rescue pups. My, my parents have a, she's like, I guess my little younger sister. My parents rescued a dog. So cute. Yeah. Um, Named Bodie. They're amazing. And self-care. Yeah. They're, they're so therapeutic, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Major mood changers Absolutely. when you're around them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But in, you know, I went, I went to law school wanting to be a public defender. Oh, good. And not it, wanting to be a vet. I would no. have been like that would have been a weird. Uh, not but agreed. what's interesting is that when you go to law school saying you want to be a public defender or defense attorney, um, everybody tries to convince you that you should actually be the prosecutor because that's where the power lies. Right. Um, but what you learn very quickly in your your practices that's that's not so true. Um, the 
DA has the power. But in terms of line assistant district attorneys, um, there's there's not as much power there as as you might you might think. Because it's like a party line, so to speak. Like you don't have a lot of discretion because you're following the. Because you're falling in line, yeah. and right. and it's, it's certainly a, a little bit of a different culture. One thing that I really love about being a public defender is. You are trusted with your cases. Um, I could go to colleagues, to supervisors. I can go all the way up to the executive director of, of where I work with a case and say, hey, I need advice, I need help, and they will give me the benefit of their experiences, but the conversation always ends the same. And it's, but Tiffany, nobody knows this case better than you, and so you know, whatever you decide to do here, I'll support you in that, and we can navigate that together. Um, and that doesn't seem to be what happens on the other side of the aisle. With district attorneys, you get the policies, um, you get your charts with, with what you do with certain cases, and everything has to be approved by somebody else and so you're going up this chain of ladder sort of handcuffed uh, and you have the person with the least amount of information about a case sometimes making the most consequential decisions mm-hmm. in somebody's life and so what this this trauma-based justice this is something that informs um, def- defense uh, it, it's I mean w- yes. what's the background like was yes. this a movement is this something like psychologists and, and law lawyers got together at some conference like what where did yeah. it come from I think it really comes from a place of public defenders one we create these really intimate relationships and we want so badly to help our, our clients and their families and their communities as best we can and so figuring out how you do that um, and what our goals are which by the way I think should be the goals and the metrics of success for DA's offices right. are, are are three things, really. Um, how do we reduce recidivism? How do we keep crimes from occurring, right? Because we don't want our clients cycling in and out of the system. How do we decarcerate? How do we keep people rooted in their communities? And how do we inject fairness into our process? Like, how do we make sure that this is something that is fair across racial and, and class lines? Um, and when you're taking that sort of view, uh, then you know you have to go into somebody's trauma history and see where they're struggling. Um, because what you learn as a public defender, again, going back to to trauma and resources, is that stability equals public safety. Stability keeps people out of the system. When people have access to, you know, where they're going to lay their head at night, harm reduction services, education, job opportunities, um, those are the the best ways um, to keep people safe and stable. And um, getting people situated in those spaces, you really got to learn about them and what they've struggled with and what their communities have historically struggled with. Right. And what about you? You talked about your own experience with trauma how did you experience that yeah um so i i guess i could talk about it in a couple of ways but um certainly it, it ties into why i do what i do and and how i approach my advocacy for my clients um but you know i grew up in, in queens i grew up in south richmond hill queens and uh, my parents grew up in nitro housing they grew up in the woodside houses um i in in the context of talking about I'm going to tell two stories, if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, In the context of, of talking about my work, um, you know, I talk about my own family. Um, I talk about my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather was a, a, a man who was pretty physically abusive to his family. Um, he was also somebody who struggled with alcoholism um, to the point where my grandmother left him and my mom um, dropped out of school to help take care of the family. And um, after I was born when I got a little bit older my grandfather was declining in health he was essentially drinking himself to death and when he came back into our lives he was um, this incredibly patient loving kind um I like I loved him to death. He was my favorite person on the planet. He was a, a Korean War combat veteran, and so he, he had earned a Purple Heart. He um, 
had injuries from the war and and he'd tell me these stories about how he lost part of his ear and they were like they weren't war stories they were like these really fantastical like witches and wizards and like I, I just I loved him but so were they much. true like had he actually had he, an injury yeah, yeah, but you yeah, describe yeah, them with just, magical causes yeah yeah and so okay. like when I got older um you know thinking about this really abusive um husband and father and this really incredible right. loving amazing grandfather they were both so equally true and he was somebody that could have been cycling in and out of our criminal justice system uh, but he was also again a korean war combat veteran with P- came home with ptsd self-medicated with alcohol and like where were our systems in place right. to support him so that he could support his family uh, and that's sort of the way that i think about when you know when i i am representing anybody and it's not just how their contact with the criminal justice system you know, affects them, but it affects their family. It affects their entire you know, family tree. Um, and then I think about what differences my life has made. You know, like my what was modeled for my mother were unhealthy relationships. So what did she find? Certainly unhealthy relationships. What was modeled for me? unhealthy relationships but you know my story is not one where like I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I got to be a lawyer and help all these people Um, sometimes it's really hard to to pinpoint and that's the point right and what I end up talking about is like well you know what my dad got a union gig he got a union gig he was able to buy a small home I had access to to healthcare and an education and therapy services that allowed me to have reparative experiences and be healthier in general and you know my clients sometimes don't have that right and that may be the only difference maker there right so and i'm just curious what did your um did your grandfather change like um towards your mom also or was it just that his role as a grandfather was different from his role as a a father which is often the case but i I think it's different and again i was really young at the time so to be able to process that and say with any certainty I, i wouldn't be able to but but my own life experiences, I know that based on my own trauma history, I struggle in certain times of, types of relationships and dynamics, sure. whereas I don't in others. Right. Um, and it is, again, only through support that I've been able to, to have healthier practices in those areas that I've struggled in. Yeah. Yeah. My mom's mother was an interesting, very interesting mom, but a very funny grandmother. Yeah. A lot easier to have yeah. as a grandmother. Well, tell us where you differ from your um, from the other people who are running against you. Uh, because it's a very full field, right? And as you said earlier, like a lot of people realize that it's a convenient and politically expedient label to call themselves progressive. So how do you stand out? Yes. Um, you know, for me, I think the easiest way to describe it is is this is the work that I've always done. When people ask me why I became a public defender and they ask me now, you know, why do you want to be DA? The answer is is the same. Um, and it is tied to just feeling so rooted in, in my community and feeling like this is, is tied to my own survival, the survival of my family, of my neighborhoods. Um, and beyond that, I think what separates me besides this not being a pivot, this is a continuation, right? This is not, you know, I'm not a, a career prosecutor who has perpetuated the system that we're now saying needs to be reformed or, um, you know, a politician who has maybe never stepped foot inside of criminal court to see what happens and goes on there. Um, but also, uh, I when we talk about these reforms, it, it ends up sounding sort of the same, but there's a lot of nuance there, and, and I always talk about how you do it matters. And for me, this is about participatory justice. This is about bringing our communities into the DA's office and saying, historically, the DA's office has been a place where they've decided on so many things, right? We, we punt public health issues to right. our, our, our criminal justice system. Um, and 
what I stay rooted in is our communities know best. When we talk about where resources are needed, where we need help, we need to be listening to our communities. Um, and then, you know, just on policy issue stuff, I, I'm the only candidate out there that's saying, hey, full decriminalization of sex work. Um, why? Because it saves lives. Why? Right. Because our sex work community is calling for it. Um, you know, harm reduction and safe consumption sites. Why? Because it saves lives. Um, and that is, again, just simply from being in the community, listening to those that are directly impacted and saying and making a commitment to say our policies, they're going to be made with those who are directly impacted at the table. And then we're going to keep them there so that they hold us accountable and make sure that those policies have the intended impacts. Because again, that's really why I'm running, right? I, you know, I've practiced in, in Manhattan where Cy Vance will come out with a, progress, a so-called progressive policy. And I'm in court the next day to see that there's a big fat asterisk. And the same people that were the exception to the rule yesterday are the exception to the rule today. What um, do you mean? Just so listeners understand. So, for example, this was probably maybe over almost two years ago now. But Cy Vance, by the way, great good friend of uh, Harvey Weinstein and Trump, right? <laughs> yeah. So he had put out this press release about how um, you know he wasn't going to prosecute turnstile jumps anymore. And the next week, I picked up a turnstile jump that I uh, litigated for a year and went to trial on. And these things happen on an everyday basis. This is not you know outside of the norm. And it goes back to what kind of change we need in our DA's office office because I fought that case for a year and the DA's office continually told me my client was the exception to the rule. My client was a gentleman who had served jail time. He was on parole, so he had to serve five years of, of post-release supervision. He jumped the turnstile to get to his uh, parole meeting. Uh, if he didn't go, he could have been technically violated and thrown back in, in jail. Um, and he had been out of, of of prison for three years. In that three years, he completed a drug program. He was a volunteer escort for the program, so my colleagues saw him in court all the time bringing people to their court dates. He took him about a year and a half to get stable housing, um, and when you fight a case for a year, you make eight, nine, ten court dates. And um, I'm 5'3", he was 5'2", like, and he came every single court date with his six-foot girlfriend. Wow. Like, he was, he was a really cool dude. I liked, him, I liked him a lot. But I always bring her up because she was, you know, somebody who, it was a healthy relationship that really rooted him in his community. We begged for an offer. We said, hey, give him a violation. He'll do 20 days community service on this 275 fare. And they said, no, 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 no. The parole officer called the DA and said, we don't want to violate him, but it's an, a per se violation. He'll go back in for six months. So I turned to the DA and I said, listen, what's your goal here? Because you throw him back in jail for six months, you take away his sobriety, you take away his housing, you take away the relationship that roots him in his community, and then you put him back out on the street and you're asking him to recidivate in more serious ways than a 275 fare. Um, and like that's the kind of approach that we need to be thinking in our, our DA's office. Forget about the convictions and the sentences and say, hey, two simple questions. How do we make sure this harm doesn't happen again? How do we make our community safer in actuality? And have those be the questions that drive our decisions, not just being punitive for the sake of being punitive. And what happened in the end? Um, so... Well, a lot of things happened. I want to say it was a good outcome, but it never should have went on for, for a year. Um, as a Hail Mary, I filed something that's called a Clayton motion. It's called a, a motion to dismiss in the interest of justice, talking about how it didn't serve public safety. It cost a lot of money. It didn't make any sense. Um, and that was denied. And usually those those are denied by the judges, unfortunately, even though they have the, the power to, to make a dismissal there. Um, and then I knew eventually we had to go to trial. And what they do is they it starts as an A misdemeanor, which gets you a jury. But then right beforehand, and sort of gamesmanship, kind of, right? You want to get that conviction. Um, they drop it down to a B misdemeanor, which the consequences for him are the same. Um, but you lose a jury. Because I don't think a jury 
convicts this client of, of what's going right. on. So now it's a judge and a police officer witness, and that's the whole trial. So we're like, man, we can't win this thing. Right. And I, I didn't know what else to do. So um, I spoke to one of the, the daily uh, beat reporters that you know kind of sit outside the, the, the courtrooms and said, hey, will you? I want to tell you about my case. Will you come in and watch this trial, this little oh, bench trial? Wow. So um, you know, at the end of the, the trial, um, the judge came back and sort of split the baby. They found him not guilty on the misdemeanor, which meant no per se violation, but guilty on the, the violation trespass. They're almost identical, actually, the statutes. Um, and so he didn't get violated, which was great. I have no idea whether it was like the Clayton motion that was part of the you know, part of the record so that that judge could see all the great things my client had done, right. whether it was the the very recognizable reporter sitting right. in the front row, whether it was yeah, my, like a fedora, <laughs> yeah, yeah, whether it was like my incredibly skilled cross examination of right. a cop, I don't know. Right. Um, but it was it was an outcome that prevented him from from reentering the the correctional system, which is good. But I, I you know, the amount of resources and time right. spent it shouldn't no have sense. to be it such sh- a, a struggle, right? Yes, an absolutely. obstacle, of course, absolutely. And guys, get get on the phones if you want to, 212-209-2877. And I'm talking to Tiffany Caban, who is running for the Queen's DA. And uh, she's going to take some questions from callers, so we already have some. Um, please tell us your name and where you're from. Hello? Hello. Yeah, how you doing? My name is Ed. Hi, Ed. Caller from uh, South Jamaica, Queens. How you doing? Good, thanks. Yeah. Uh, Hi, Ed. I wanted to ask the candidate. Two questions, basically. I said that there's an incestuous relationship between the district attorney and the police officer and the police uh, officers, as far as pertaining to prosecution for uh, misconduct and uh, r- racial profiling, and actually like the Amadou Diallo shooting and, the, and other incidences in the city's history. Wanted to know how you feel about that, and how would you feel about prosecuting police officers for misconduct? And secondly, I wanted to ask you about pro- the new push for legislation for prosecutorial misconduct, as far as in the DA's office, when DAs take on prosecutions of people for promotions or, or for ulterior motives other than straight-up justice. How do you feel about that, and would you be opposed to enforcement or a new branch or another way of enforcing prosecutorial misconduct if it's found in your department? Thank you so much for your question. So I'm going to start with the first one. Um, I am a firm believer that that nobody gets to hide behind their badge. Um, we have to make sure that we are protecting and keeping our community safe, and, and that means uh, holding police officers accountable when they step outside the, the roles of their duties and hurt others. And I'm not just talking about um, civilians who are killed by police officers, but um, any time that police officers are, are, are breaking the law, right? And I think what's necessary there is to have um, an independent prosecutor, right? Because to your point, prosecutors do have to work with police officers on a daily basis when they're prosecuting cases. So it's really important to make sure that we have a robust, uh, independent prosecutorial unit um, that has you know, their investigators, the, the, the special counsels, and all those things to keep it completely separate. Um, what we also need to do is make sure that we are making it sort of untenable for bad officers to stay on the job. There are situations where the DA's office is aware of officer misconduct. Conduct, um, but isn't, you know, is still going forward with those prosecutions, relying on their sworn testimony, um, and that can't continue to happen either. Um, to your question about prosecutorial uh, misconduct, 
same thing. There has to be an independent unit there to hold prosecutors accountable. And it goes beyond just that idea of doing it for promotions and things like that. It happens in other areas, too. One of my biggest concerns is there's something called the Brady Rule. And so the Brady Rule is this. Essentially, anytime there is information that in any realm of the universe could be used by the defense, right, in, in the process of them providing a defense for their client, it must be turned over and it must be turned over immediately. The problem with that rule is the prosecutors are their own gatekeeper. And so it's really hard to even catch this kind of misconduct because if we find out about it, it's something that we found out by accident, right? That's just the nature of what the material is. Um, I always make a, I'm a big baseball fan, so I always make a baseball analogy. And I talk about Brady, Brady materials this way. Um, there are three kinds of, of umpires, right? There's the umpire that says, hey, there are balls and there are strikes. And I call them like they are. There are balls and there are strikes, and I call them like I see them. And then there's a third umpire that says there are balls and there are strikes, but they're nothing until I call them. And that, for me, is the perfect example of what's happened to the Brady rule. It's It's been sort of warped, and it doesn't get followed properly, and we need new training around it because it's not for district attorneys to decide whether something can be used by defense counsel. They should err on the side of handing it over. Uh, and that's just as big of a prosecutorial misconduct problem um, as there is any. So for me, it's about making sure that we're rooting out um, those folks. Certainly, if folks are committing Brady um, Brady violations, they cannot stay employed. Um, if they are engaging in uh, really bad uh, tactics and gamesmanship, they cannot stay employed. If they are committed to doing three things, they will not only stay employed, but they will be rewarded and, and promoted, right? If you can show that you can decarcerate, if you show that you can reduce recidivism, if you show that you can apply the law fairly across racial and class lines, um, then you will be rewarded and valued. I wrote a piece about um, a guy named Terry Williams in Philadelphia who um, was pro who was on death row because he killed his sexual abuser. And this is how I learned about the Brady violation. I wrote about this for Vice. And he um, and the reason they learned about this Brady violation was coincidental because they the DA's office like 20 years ago withheld information from the from the defense that showed that they knew that this guy who he killed had been a sexual abuser and he ma they made it look like a random armed robbery mm. and they only discovered this because like the a judge when they were appealing the the death sentence they went through these files and they found the hand the handwritten notes of the ADA where she was like, oh, he was his John, he touched other young men's genitals. And then the same ADA was now trying to claim that they had no idea about this. Anyway, so what I thought was so interesting, though, as someone who hasn't gone to law school, is that the Brady violation, the, the fact that the Brady, what is it, the Brady thing exists, it's a statute, mm -hmm. it's a law, the Brady, yes. shows that it is built into the law that there's supposed to be common justice. Like, it's not just one team versus the other, right? So the idea is that if you have any infant in evidence or information that will exonerate the person, you have to hand it over. Yeah. And it's even broader than that, right? You, you don't even get to the point of making that determination. It's simply, is it within the realm of possibilities that the defense could use this right. in their defense? Right. Maybe ultimately it, it doesn't or it can't, 
but just the possibility of it means you, ha- you have to turn it over. Right. So in a way that's like, I mean, that means that, because I think people often think that just being the DA means you have to be the most punitive and draconian that you can, and that's what justice is, right? And then other people see like someone like you as kind of an activist because you're in- injecting that, but it's actually in the law. Like the law actually wants, I, I'm not really right. saying this well, because I, I, I need to go to law school, I think, to be able to make this point <laughs> as, as well as I want to, but, but it is interesting how the, the law requires you to cooperate. Like the law wants all the available exonerating, exculpatory evidence given to the defense, which again kind of speaks to why it doesn't have you that why the goals of the defense and prosecution mm-hmm. can and should be the same. Right. And I talk about this all the time when we change and really it's about changing those metrics of success because right. we're measuring success in DA's offices simply through numbers of convictions, lengths of sentences. But when you stop that and say, hey, this is a public safety job, this is right. about keeping people safe, uh, then you know that there are so many opportunities um, to be working with the defense and not just being adversarial for the sake right. of being adversarial. Because again, when we go when we go back to it, right? What do, what do defense attorneys want? They want to keep their clients out of the system. If they're if they're staying out of the system, it means that there's there's not harm right. being had somewhere. And so there's so many so many opportunities right. to be working together. Right. Like why I always think like when yeah. people like with solitary confinement. I mean, I'm against it no matter what. But when people, when someone's not in jail for life, it really makes no sense to me because you're just basically traumatizing a person because mm-hmm. lots of bodies consider it torture, and then you're releasing them. Like, what? What's the t- what's the end game there? Right. Like, I'm against it obviously for anyone, and I don't believe in life in prison for non, especially for nonviolent. I don't. I well, agree with you. But but like that is just such a weird. That's such a like cutting off your nose to spite your face because even if you're tough on crime and you care about public safety, why are you doing that? It's just it's this weird. Vin- Indictive bloodlust that's like oh, blinding. Yes. Yeah. Oh yes, and to your point, right? Um, you know, 97, 98% of people are that are, do end up incarcerated are going to re-enter their communities. And what are we doing to make sure that they don't end up cycling back into right. our system? Yeah, it doesn't help victims or potential no, victims. Not at to all. Make them that much more. Not at all. Um, traumatized. Uh, we have another caller. Can you say your name and where you're from? Okay, I'm Ken from Queens, Hi, and Ken. I love her progressive view. Great. Thanks, Ken. And I, I think that's what we need to do because I, uh, I was heard in another BAI show that not only is the the person being affected, but their whole family and the people that know know them are being affected. So you're not just trying to put justice on one person, and it's not their justice; it's 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 a vindictive justice. Right. And I, I wish her the best. She's got my vote. Great. And where can people people who support you? What do you, what can they do? By the way. Oh yes. Um, so you can check out our website at kabanforqueens uh, That's c a b a n f o r queens That's my Twitter handle, my my Instagram handle. Handle. You can sign up to volunteer on the website. You can sign up to contribute on the the website. Certainly, um, you know we are rejecting all corporate dollars. Uh, so this is this is people powered um, and and fueled by by y'all. So anything um, anything that you can contribute certainly helps. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. And we have another call? Yes, my name is Sharif, and I'm from Queens. Uh, I would just like to make a comment for um, Tiffany Caban, okay? I would just like to say she sounds very sensitive, caring, and empathic, you know? And that is very good, you know? Her experiences in life, I think, is a qualifier. And I'd just like to make a comment about one of the comments you made. Uh, Sometimes institution or being in jail it's very helpful in some senses. Like myself, I'm a former, um, I guess you could say a person who's been locked up, right? And that's many, many years ago. I'm a teacher, mm-hmm. psychotherapist now. But had not I been in there 
and said, been on what they call deadlock in the cell all day. What you really get a chance to do is think. And you don't do that when you're in the street sometimes. I mean, some of the things I've done, I did, had I thought that out before I did it, I would have never done it. And it really actually hurt me to think that I did some of the things I did. But that's what being in themselves all day, 24-7, can help you really respect and really think, you know, and that's something you don't get a chance to do on the street. And when you come home, you know, then you need a job. And if you've been gone a long time, like I was back in the past, it's a little difficult because mm -hmm. you have that big gap in your resume. So that can be yeah. harmful. So they need to really make programs to help people when they're coming out, which I was involved in one. But yeah. institutionalization, that's, that's good to a point, you know, for, at least for me, you know. What I did is I learned the study in there. I learned all about grammar, you know, just a great deal about law. So when I came home, I was ready to re-educate myself. And now I'm just about to doctor. I have three post-master certificates. Wow. Congratulations. I have a master's degree yeah. from uh, NYU. And so wow. jail helped me. Had not I gone through that, I'd be dead some of the things I was doing. Thank wow. you very much. And that young lady has my vote. So Thank far. you. Thank you. And I, I appreciate you sharing your experience. If I could just add a, a little bit to it, um, you know, to your point, um, one, I, I do believe that removing somebody from their community should be the very last resort. And if we do that, we should be having a conversation around how we make that time um, as productive and supportive as, as possible so that people can be successful when they reenter their communities. But one thing that I like to think about is what if you had had the opportunity to get that kind of ability to, to think and process through things and get that support without being thrown into a cage. And so when I think about the district attorney's office being a place where, um, you know, public safety is the goal and not just punishing people, then it makes makes all the sense in the world to use the vast uh, resources and budget of the DA's office to uh, reinvest in our communities and say, hey, there are all these great community-based organizations that provide the kind of support that so many people could benefit from that would keep them from cycling um, into our justice system, and that is money well spent rather than throwing it into our, our prison industrial complex um, and profiting off of uh, you know the continued oppression and marginalization of, of these same groups that we historically have had. And so thank you. I thank you so much for sharing your experience. I congratulate you for all of the things that you've done and uh, am certainly honored to have your vote. Thank you. It's like the Malcolm X experience, right? Yeah. Like someone who gets to be gets to go to jail. I mean, that is an interesting point. And the question that you raise, of course, is extremely important. So what could be done that gives people these potential times for like introspection and mm -hmm. thought that's not incarceration? What what are those programs that people could sure. reinvest in? I mean, there are so many different things um, and so many great programs just here in Queens alone. Um, there. If I could tell a little bit of an anecdotal story, um, I had a, a client who um, was engaging in a lot of assaultive behavior. And before I met him, he had gotten arrested a few times in like the, the year and a half before, and each time, just 30 days jail, 60 days jail, 90 days jail. And finally, I get him, he had gotten into another fight. And the, the DA was like, enough is enough. He is, you know, nine months jail. Right. And you know, he kind of turned to the DA, and I'm like, but you realize jail's not working, right? You throw him in jail for longer periods of time, you throw him back on the street, and he's, he's still hurting other people. Like, let's learn more about this young man. And what I learned through working with our social worker and 
and things like that was that he was somebody that was horribly physically abused right. as a child. Somebody that, again, really, you know, unhealthy relationship dynamics that were modeled for him. Um, and he didn't have access to a lot of, of resources. And so I said, well, why not? Why don't we get him into some individual therapy? Right? Like, like why, let's, let's do that because jail obviously isn't working. And the DA's response was, um, well, he should know better. He should know better that you know, you're not supposed to hit people. And I said, yeah, there, there are certain things. Like, had you told me, you know, two years ago that I should know better about certain things, I could say intellectually, yes. But yeah. did I have the tools in my toolbox to, to act differently? No. And it is, again, by virtue of having access to things, um, to things like that that make all the difference in the world. And here's an opportunity to actually change behavior, keep him safe, and keep others safe, right? Uh, but, you know, in Queens, I'm really proud to have the, the support and endorsements of, you know, folks like Make the Road and Vocal New York. They provide incredible supportive services. Um, the the Women's Project does really great work. Our Children. Um, cure Violence is incredible. We should be investing in Cure Violence because when we talk about um, investing in our communities and services and support, it's not just for programming. I mean, we should have, um, you know, access to job training and education and therapy services and things like that. But it's also about getting these systems in place that, that also reduce violence because... Um, we agree that some of this other stuff that they're public health issues, right? Um, when we talk about um, substance use disorder, mental health illness, um, even economic insecurity, these are public health issues. But we really also should be talking about violence as a public health issue, and that right. there's an opportunity to be creating these partnerships with organizations that help reduce violence as well. You know, sometimes when we're trying to work to get services for our clients, um, a little too often the DA will offer up um, a program or something that they've developed in-house um, that really doesn't get the results uh, that, uh, quite honestly, some of our community-based organizations can do. And, and for me, I think that there's a few reasons why that is. One, I think it's because, um, unfortunately, those programs are staffed the same way the district attorney's office is staffed in, in the sense that they're not um, staffed by folks with uh, a real connection to the community, um, and and these community-based organizations, they are. It's again, it's their community. It's tied to their survival. They care intimately. They know who they're servicing very intimately, um, and they're starving for resources. So one of the things that I think should happen is we should start divesting from some of these internal uh, programs and empowering uh, our communities and, and investing in them to do the work that they could do far better than than anybody um, in the in the DA's office alone can do. So I'd like to see that happen. When we talk about our criminal justice system, you can't talk about it without talking about housing, healthcare, mm. education. They're all so deeply intertwined. And I go back to that idea that, you know, stability equals public safety. And when they're all intertwined and you know that stable lives mean safety and, and health, holistic health, um, then that's where our tax dollars should be going. That's, you know, we should stop investing again in our prison industrial complex here in the city. We spend tens of millions of dollars a year just busing people from Rikers Island to their court dates. Um, and imagine what that kind of money um, could be used for. In, in Queens alone, um, the DA's office is sitting on a, around $100 million worth of federal asset forfeiture money. Um, and my proposal is that it should be put right back into the communities because it was taken from our, our communities. Um, and we should ask communities, hey, how do you want it used? Right. So in a situation where, where you and your son are struggling with some of these things, wouldn't it be incredible to say, hey, um, you know, this is money that could go into services that would really provide stability and support for your for your son. And um, so, can you just, uh, as we're wrapping up, can you uh, go through 
some particular policies and positions you have, um, and also um, talk about if you were inspired by, I mean, just just don't get your hopes up, but I want you to know Larry Krasner was a guest on the Katie Halper Show, <laughs> of course, who's the DA in Philadelphia, who's um, was one of, I guess, like the first guys mm-hmm. to make the, people to make the transition from the defense side to the DA side. Yes. Um, so this is an exciting kind of trend we're seeing. But yeah, just talk about more about what your um, your policies are, uh, positions are, and especially the things that you have that are different from other people sure. running. Um, so I am, I mean, absolutely inspired. It's almost like lightning in a bottle, right? I'm inspired by so many different things. I'm inspired by what's been done in, in Philadelphia with Larry Krasner and recognizing that there's so many ways to build on that and that it's happening in other places, right? Um, Boston, St. Louis. Um, and there's a real openness to saying, hey, we need to rethink our justice system um, and what what it is supposed to do, what its function is. Um, I think that first starts from a place of acknowledging that it is one that is rooted in racism and classism, and you got to come to terms with that, right, right? Um, to start dismantling that, and that we can really start uh, transforming the system into something that can be a vehicle for supporting and stabilizing lives, right? Like, forget about convictions and sentences. Those numbers don't matter. Let's talk about the numbers of lives we save. Let's talk about the numbers of communities we stabilize. That, for me, is 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 game-changing. Uh, and then seeing what's happening just in, in Queens politics, um, how the tide is is turning. Um, we see what happened with the no-IDC candidates, uh, with, you know, with what AOC accomplished, um, with, you know, movements like the no-Amazon. Um, our, our communities are powerful. And to have and sort of to tie this into what separates me a little bit from the field is when we talk about progressive again I it's a a term that's hard to use at this point but to see the way that um, uh, like a progressive coalition has has taken what we're trying to do here and really rallied behind it, I'm so proud to have the the support of you know the, the groups that I do, um, you DSA. Know, DSA, Working Families Party, the Real Justice Pack, um, Make the Road, uh, you know Vocal New York, NIPAN, Amplify Her. Um, these are our folks that are in their communities on the ground fighting each and every day, um, and we are are creating something really, really special that, that is incredibly exciting. And then Julia Salazar, also oh, yes. former guest of the show. Yes. Jessica Ramos, another yes. state senator. She just endorsed yes, uh, She just Monday. endorsed uh, yesterday. Yesterday was Monday. Yeah. The days uh, are bleeding together. Yeah. But yeah, that, I mean... I, I fangirled a little bit at that one. Yeah. It was a really cool one. But, you know, Senator Gustavo Rivera, Senator Sepulveda. Oh, another friend, guest um, of the show, friend of the yeah. show. Great. Um, and do you, I just want to know if you had any comments on this. Uh, during the, there was a CNN town hall yesterday, and um, the people participating were asked, um, it was a five-hour, five-candidate town hall in Manchester, New Hampshire, and they were asked about um, whether or not people who are incarcerated should have the right to vote. Um, and uh, Sanders said they should. Um, and Pete Buttigieg said they should not. Um, so I was wondering where you fell on that. They absolutely should. And yeah. again, this this comes from a place of also having to to understand and accept the fact that we disproportionately criminalize and incarcerated certain folks. Right. Um, and, you know, that... It is really important that those very people that have been uh, disproportionately impacted, that their voices are heard in our government, because it's the only way that we're going to change some of these things. Right. Yeah. So there's, I guess, a distinction between. So so Pete, Mayor Pete, um, thinks that you should get your vote 
when you've re-entered society, you should get it. But Sanders says you should have it while you're serving your sentence. Um, I have to agree with Sanders yeah, course, yeah, <laughs> on that of course, one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I guess the mm-hmm. idea is that you. Uh, I'm, yeah, it seems like it's it's based in this bad kind of like um, seeing a person as good or bad, like you were saying, you know, right. as opposed to the way that you were describing your grandfather, right, where people are kind of mixed bags or it's a question of access. Like, why should someone who's not in, who's, I mean, it's, they're in jail. Um, why does that make them someone who doesn't have the right to vote? Right. I mean, I mean, it is kind of, it almost makes sense, just, but, but I think it makes sense because I think jail is so horrible. Oh, yeah. It's like, so yeah, yeah, take away all their rights, but I don't want any of their rights to be taken away. So yeah. unless well, you're doing it as like protest piece, which yeah, you obviously and not. it's, I mean, we're, we're talking about, uh, I almost hesitate to say like, oh, we're talking about things that our country was founded on. There were a lot of things that our country yeah. was founded on. Right. But like when we're but talking about constitutional rights, right, right um, it, it just, it seems at least to me like a no brainer. Um, I almost, it is not exactly the same thing, but they were like sort of similar discussions around what happened with the cash bail bill here in New York. Um, so, you know, this idea that we need to be carving out these exceptions, like, well, yeah, exactly. well, they're in, no, thinking, but yeah. when they get out, yes. You know, for cash bail, they said, oh, well, we'll end cash bail for low-level, you know, nonviolent misdemeanors, and we won't for violent felonies. Right. First of all, there's a lot of nuance there. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's either it's right or exactly. it's wrong. I was actually right? thinking of that when I was reading. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, you have two systems. Right. Yeah, cash. So cash bail means basically you have people. It's whether or not you can can afford, afford. to. Right. So for me, it, it, either you agree that it is wrong to say, "Hey, we're going to base it on on your wealth," right? That you get right. to buy your your exactly. constitutional yeah. presumption of innocence. Right. Um, and so why it would make a difference between what you're charged right. with, like if somebody's charged with a violent felony, exactly. Somebody who's poor stays in jail. Somebody who is wealthy gets to buy that presumption, um, it right. just makes absolutely right, no exactly. sense. Right, exactly. Yeah, why is this violation, why is this unfairness allowed when there's a violent crime at question at hand as opposed to a nonviolent? I mean, it makes it, it's kind of a, like a justice versus charity thing almost, right? It's almost like they're doing a favor. They're providing charity or clemency to people, but it's a justice question, so mm-hmm. they should just not have to pay bail, uh, do cash bail. And cash bail is when you're um, you're you're basically being held until you're, you're being, it's it's pretrial detention. Pre-trial so detention, you, yeah. you haven't you know you haven't been found guilty of anything. Um, you haven't had your day in court. Right. Essentially, you may not even have the evidence. Most often, you don't even have the evidence against you in a case, and, right. and you're you know you're incarcerated. And and then people will like plead. Um, guilty to things right because they just to expedite it because they can't yeah i mean exactly it's it's used as sort of a coercive practice so and that goes back to those metrics right when we talk about convictions and sentences it all informs a lot of the gamesmanship that that goes on so you so it, it what results is unfortunately you have an overcharge that then gets before a judge where a da asks for high bail that the person then can't you know based on these charges right these allegations um and then somebody is incarcerated and then you know because of their sentencing exposure on the overcharging and the fact that they're incarcerated you you can coerce them into a, a lesser plea that right. know, results in a conviction and, and whatever sentence it might be. It's funny. It also reminds me, just as a last point, it reminds me of when like the severity of the crime makes people try 
a minor as an adult it's like why does the why does how horrible it is right. make them an adult if anything you'd think that if a person commits a, such a terrible crime at that age there's probably something very like mitigating mm-hmm. there like some trauma or some d- mental disability Absolutely. but it's like such a weird moralistic vindictive thing again where it's like oh it was a violent crime then you do deserve to have your wealth buy you out of it yeah but if it's not violent then yeah, it's like, it's not rational. It's it's not at all. And when we talk about, you know, systems and, and stability and trauma, it's it's like this idea. Well, it, it's, it's sort of something that you can apply across the board of like, well, trauma manifests in so many different ways. Um, it could be nonviolent behavior. Right. It could be violent behavior. But that doesn't make it less worthy of, hey, can we can we help this person and change behavior? Right. Yeah. Well, we have to uh, wrap it up, but thank you so much. Uh, remind you. people where they can find you. And also, last question, should I go to law school? Ooh. <laughs> well, come back. You can come back to help decide that one. But uh, um, Flashbacks to the bar yeah. exam. Um, I'll give you some time to think about it. I don't want to put you on the spot. It's a very serious t- uh, decision. But, um, yes, uh, Tiffany Caban running for Queen's DA. Just remind people where they can find you and find out more. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. The website is www.cabanforqueens.com. That's F-O-R, queens.com. Um, that's my Twitter and Instagram handle. And um, I hope to hear from you. I hope to earn your support. And come out and vote on June 25th. Thank you. And don't go anywhere because we're going to address the issue of voting rights for the incarcerated a little deeper right now. So let's get into this. The voting rights of incarcerated. The range on positions is whether or not incarcerated should regain their right to vote, uh, whether or not they should lose it at all, ever, even while they're in prison, and whether or not some should have it and some shouldn't. Um, So where are you on this? And is this something you had thought about before? So, you know, I have thought about it before. In fact, in my role as a public defender, um, you know, one of the conversations I have, one of the really tough conversations you have with your clients sometimes is, you know, when you're getting ready to take that plea that gives your client a a criminal record um, and you talk about what are the collateral consequences, what does that mean? Not just in terms of a sentence, but what it means for the rest of your life, whether it's housing and employment. But one of the things I make a point to talk to them about is, um, you know, you should know that you have the right to vote and you should vote. Um, and you know what the differences are when you're incarcerated, when you're on some sort of post-release supervision, and then when you're no longer under um, any sort of supervision. So my position is that uh, that uh, folks that are incarcerated should not uh, be denied the right to vote. Right, but they are currently in every state, yes. I believe, except for Maine and Vermont. Yes. I realize how little we talk about this issue because the focus is so often it's like such a low standard of rights that that we are fighting for the right of people to in their right right to vote after they've served their sentence. But what the principle in a weird way makes I mean, like, what would you say to someone who's like, well, like Pete, Pete, Mayor Pete, whose name no one can say. So he's Mayor Pete um, was just like, well, yeah, you lose your rights while you're in prison. So that's another right that you lose. What's your response to that? Uh, you know, again, it it actually goes back to what we're fighting for in this district attorney race. It's this idea that we need to really rethink what it means to to uh, to prosecute, to impose sentences. Uh, that we should be focusing on how do we make sure harm doesn't happen again? How do we keep our communities um, safe and not being punitive for the sake of being um, punitive? You know, uh, one of the basic problems with our system is the fact that we just simply dehumanize people right. who who 
either commit crimes or make mistakes. And, you know, I talk about this a lot in terms of we need to be taking holistic approaches, looking at people's trauma histories, um, supporting people where we can, because that's the best way to stabilize communities. But instead, um, you know, we, we take people and we throw them in cages and we dehumanize them. Um, yeah. And uh, we do all these things that are at the expense of, again, human beings. Um, you know, these are these are basic rights. Um, you talk about it being rooted in our, in our constitution. Uh, and I think that, you know, really what we are doing because of what our system has been is we're not just disenfranchising people. We are disproportionately disenfranchising people of, of color, um, you know, low income communities. And so it is another way to continue to oppress and marginalize, um, the same folks that we have historically done. So to. right. Something that, um, Pete, uh, Budichick said that I found really scary was he basically acknowledged that after in terms of, of reenfranchisement, right, that yeah. he was saying, yeah, we should give people felons the, the the right to vote, give them back the right to vote. And he acknowledged he's like, I think some people on the opposite side of the aisle have realized it's in their advantage in their self-interest to not have these people vote. And there's some racial elements to it. Frankly, I think the motivations for preventing that kind of reenfranchisement in, in some cases have to do with one side of the aisle noticing that they politically benefit uh, from, from that. And that's got some racial layers too. But if they're racial, i.e. if it's racist, which we know it is, to disenfranchise people because we know our criminal justice system is racist, why is he okay, or anyone who advocates removing voting rights while people are incarcerated, why is it okay to be racist then, but not right. when they're out of jail? I mean, that is just such a, an inherently, you know, scary and, yeah. and problematic statement to, to make. Right. And uh, it, it's like when we were saying the other day, you know, one of the things you're fighting against is cash is uh, well, no cash bail. Right. Mm -hmm. And right. there are people who you're running against in um, your opponents who are no cash bail when it's nonviolent. But again, if this is an issue of classism, right, and access and justice, why should people, only people accused of nonviolent crimes be, have, have the right to justice? You can't make that distinction at all. I mean, I, I completely agree with you. Either it is fundamentally wrong or you are okay with it. And yeah. there's really no middle ground there. Right. Um, I, of course, the way they framed it, um, because the media loves to do this and sensationalize politics um, and take out all kind of nuances that they were like, oh, would you let the voter, the, the, the Boston bombers have the right to vote? And Sanders was like very straightforward about it. Like, yeah, of course you do. You don't let the government chip away. Uh, at people's voting rights. So how would you respond to people like, you know, the brilliant thinker Meghan McCain, who is deeply offended by this? I mean, beyond that, right, even when you take and it, always when you go to these like very extreme places, right. Um, right. I, I think that there's there's already an issue there. But there's even another conversation to be had. I mean, there is a lot of evidence that shows that empowering people by giving them a voice is critical to mm. rehabilitative experiences. Right. And that's something that's like, that is a restorative justice principle, right? So when we start also thinking about this from the lens of, you know, we want to make sure people don't re-enter our, right. our, our um, criminal justice system. We want um, to stabilize lives. We want, you know, when we're saying, hey, we're all for restorative justice, well, this is just another way to do that. And also, again, you know, to your point, start righting historical wrongs when we talk about disproportionate effects. Um, the, the oppression on certain communities. Right. Um, so, you know, when we, and 
it's interesting because if we want to call it a correctional system, right? Like at right. least in theory, uh, and preventing folks from having the ability to correct the system, namely name their, you know, voice, um, you know, their beliefs in, a, in an election, um, really is just counter to to that premise. Right. And I think it's scary also, again, like when you use the people like to use the, the least sympathetic examples always. Right. And they use that to justify taking away rights. And I mean, I think you and I don't believe in that for anyone. Like, I don't think we believe that the Boston bombers should have their I mean, we're not like, oh, well, since they did something terrible, let's just torture them or deprive them of food in a, in a jail cell. Right. Like, right. we clearly believe and even though I'm sure we have problems with the way all of this works, like within the very unjust system, we're not like it's not like a vigilante free for all. Um, but even if people, let's say for argument's sake, we're talking to someone who really doesn't believe in, in like giving rights to people like the Boston bombers, which is a messed up position, but just for argument's sake, like where would they draw the line? It's your classic, you know, slippery slope. Yeah, exactly. Right. And Um, then also you inevitably, you end up, you know, eroding everybody's constitutional rights. Right. It always starts there and then it trickles down kind of, that's the, that's where trickle down actually works. trickle down deprivation and then another issue is uh florida they passed a a voter um enfranchisement bill that you know gave the a referendum that gave the felons but they excluded sex offenders people with sex offender records which was very controversial because it was enshrining something in a state constitution except carving out a population that doesn't deserve allegedly doesn't deserve it Um, But it's so politically toxic because nobody wants to be seen except for Bernie Sanders and some other that's saying, hey, we should give these folks. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because then you're defending sex offenders. And it also goes back to kind of the the famous Michael Dukakis exchange where he was asked, what would you do if it was your wife who was uh, raped and killed? Would you want the death penalty? And he took a lot of heat for that because he said, I mean, I think rightfully so. Like, no, I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I've opposed the death penalty during all of my life. I don't see any evidence that it's a deterrent, and I think there are better and more effective ways to deal with violent crime. We've done so in my own state, and it's one of the reasons why we have... uh, had the biggest drop in crime of any industrial state in America, while we have the lowest murder rate of any industrial state. But it just really speaks to the role of media also in these discussions. Um, oh, yeah. You, I think what I find so fascinating and, and so frustrating is that you can't in the same breath say, hey, I recognize our system is racist, our, yeah. our criminal system is racist, it's classist, and because of that we are um, you know, criminalizing certain groups of folks and then say, well, by the way, these folks don't don't deserve constitutionally protected rights. Right. Exactly. It's not charity. It's justice. Right. Like you can't think of yourself as doing these people a favor. Right. Which is, I think, a big problem in in politics in general. Okay, now it's really over. So thanks again so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show. You can hear the Katie Helper Show on iTunes and you can rate and review us. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. The Katie Helper Show is edited by Ted Reedy and our theme song is by the band Cordova. Don't forget to get your tickets for our live show with Struggle Session, Matt Taibbi, Jamie Peck, and Jake Flores at Littlefield. See you next time.